Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be covering the case of Janie Landers in Salem, Oregon. Let's get right to it. In 1979, Janie Landers was a patient at Fairview Hospital and Training Center. Fairview presented itself as on the cutting edge of advancements for people with disabilities and mental health conditions. If you had taken a tour of the sprawling 700-acre property back then, you'd see large, well-manicured lawns, 28 cottages for residents, beautiful brick buildings with pillars and porches, Sidewalks and shade trees out in the country, complete with pools and gyms. If you didn't know better, you'd think you just stumbled upon a college campus there in Salem, Oregon. But behind the facade was a history of abuse, death, and human rights violations. And it began from basically the day the doors opened. Before we get any further, the language I'm about to use to describe the patients at Fairview back then is the language used not only by Fairview, but around the globe to describe human beings that were differently abled both physically and mentally. It's abhorrent and soul-crushing. The words are difficult for me to repeat. However, in order to get an understanding of how anyone viewed as different at that time was treated, the stigmas that existed, and what led to the state-sanctioned abuse of these beautiful souls, it's necessary. According to the documentary In the Shadow of Fairview, the doors opened in 1908 as the state institution of the feeble-minded. Its first patient was 10-year-old Jack Crawford. Jack suffered from epilepsy, which at the time was considered one of the most incurable ailments, and many epileptic people were tossed in insane asylums and state hospitals, tucked away and forgotten. The definition for mental illness at the Oregon State Hospital was vague, as it was in many other places. It included everything from epilepsy, sleep disturbances, dementia, and those who were deaf or blind. Disabled children were referred to as defective youth. The adults were called feeble-minded, idiotic persons, or any other host of dehumanizing terms. A newspaper article from 1907 in the Portland Oregonian reads, Boy of five, young man in size. Roy Fifield, five years old and one of the most remarkable human monstrosities on record, was taken before the county court yesterday and adjudged insane after a close medical examination. To the layman, the case is infinitely pathetic and to the medical man, it's one of unusual interest. At the age when the normal child is leaving short dresses, Roy has grown the physical proportions of a youth of 18, while his mind has failed utterly in its growth. In conclusion, the article states, The hapless freak was taken in custody by the authorities at the instance of his father. Hapless freak. 
Roy was a five-year-old child, and while we'll never know what his actual diagnosis would be today, as the documentary In the Shadow of Fairview points out, the following year, this same little boy's name was in the paper for another reason. He had made the honor roll. Most speculate that Roy was just physically larger than the average child his age and possibly had some sort of learning disability, something that today we'd simply make accommodations for. Back then, earned this tiny human the title of monstrosity. And Roy wasn't alone. The differently abled were commonly either put on display as some sort of attraction or hidden away. Between 1908 to 2000, roughly 10,000 patients got treatment at Fairview Training Center. But they weren't known as patients. They were known as inmates and treated as such. Boys were forced to work on the farm, which supplied much of the food source for the institution. Girls worked in laundry where they washed and sewed the clothing. There were countless preventable deaths, involuntary lifetime commitments, rampant physical and sexual abuse. And for most of these inmates, their only crime was being born different, having a seizure disorder, or being born into poor families. Some were placed at Fairview simply because their families couldn't afford to provide for them. Many of them, the children of immigrants, whose parents thought they were giving their children an opportunity at a better life. I mean, the campus was beautiful, and they put on one hell of a smoke and mirror show. And if you thought all of that was bad, well, hold on to your hats because it's about to get so much worse. According to ASU.edu, in 1917, the Oregon State Legislature in Salem, Oregon, created the Oregon State Board of Eugenics, an organization that presided over the forced sterilization of more than 2,600 Oregon residents from 1917 to 1981. The bill was titled to prevent procreation of certain classes in Oregon. And Oregon wasn't alone. Forgive me as I ruin some American history for you today. According to Webster, eugenics is defined as a practice or advocacy of controlled selective breeding of human populations, as by sterilization, to improve the population's genetic composition. It's most often associated with Hitler and the Nazi regime. The evils committed by those monsters are by far one of the most egregious examples of eugenics in action. But that son of a bitch Adolf didn't invent the idea of purifying the human race. Eugenic principles were being practiced as early as ancient Greece. Before Hitler ever took power, according to ThoughtCo, more than half of the states in the U.S. had already passed sterilization laws, which included forced sterilization of the immigrants, black and indigenous people, poor people, Puerto Rican people, poor white people, incarcerated people, and those living with disabilities. And further, Hitler's sterilization laws and those in America as well as other parts of the world were all based off the same garbage model law written by American educator and trash human Harry H. Laughlin. According to the Eugenics Archive, Laughlin's model eugenical sterilization law proposed the sterilization of people deemed socially inadequate. Who did Laughlin consider inadequate? People residing in institutions, 
those who required the government's financial assistance, and the feeble-minded, insane, criminalistic, epileptic, inebriate, diseased, blind, deaf, deformed, and dependent. He also included orphans, 'er ne'er-do-wells, tramps, the homeless, immigrants, and those in the LGBTQ community. I told y'all this guy was straight garbage. Back to Fairview. Many of Oregon's four sterilizations happened right there at the institution, and residents were forced to be sterilized before they were granted release from this hellhole. You might be thinking, it's inexcusable, but that was in the early 20th century, and that might have been when it started, but those four sterilizations didn't stop in Oregon until 1981. And four sterilizations for people with disabilities are still legal in the United States of America in this year of our Lord, 2022. According to a 2019 report from the National Women's Law Center, 31 states and Washington, D.C. have laws allowing for sterilization of disabled people. There's not even a statistic available for me to give you on how many disabled people are sterilized in the U.S. today. But I can tell you that according to this report, disabled women, especially persons of color, are sterilized more frequently and at a younger age than men, and the decision is often made for them by their guardian or a judge. As we probably know by now, I could do a series or five about the abuses and human rights violations of Fairview, just as I did on the Judge Rotenberg Center. If you haven't listened to that series yet, I highly recommend you skip on back. It's titled The Shocking Truth, and as the fight to end electric shock for the disabled continues, your support is needed. We've made some progress as a society when it comes to our acceptance of differently abled people, but nowhere near enough. I couldn't tell you Janie's story today without mentioning the abuse that she suffered at Fairview and all the brothers and sisters who came before her, because their stories matter, just like Janie's. Janice Ann Landers, better known as Janie, was born on February 20th, 1961. According to her sister Joyce, as she spoke to Cold Case Files, Janie was the second born of five siblings. Joyce was further down the line, but she and Janie were inseparable. Janie loved to play outside, and Joyce just loved being with her sister. Out of all of the siblings, Janie and Joyce were the closest. As Janie entered elementary school, teachers began to suspect that she may have had a developmental impairment. She struggled in school. She would get frustrated and throw things. At times, and even at home, Janie would get so upset she'd run away from whatever situation was upsetting her, but she'd always cool down and come back. Her parents wanted to help her, and if they understood the root of Janie's frustration, maybe they'd have a chance. By October of 1968, Janie was seven years old. She'd been diagnosed with developmental and learning disabilities, as well as some mental health conditions. Professionals at Coos County Mental Health Clinic recommended that Janie's parents take her to Fairview Training Center for further testing. So they did. The staff at Fairview claimed they could help Janie. With the right amount of therapy and instruction, she could live up to her full potential. Of course, her parents got the razzle-dazzle tour of the Fairview cottages, the pool, and all their cutting-edge technology. They thought this was the answer. These were medical professionals. I mean, they had to know best, right? 
It started out simply enough. Janie was there at Fairview to get an education and learn life skills. Her parents could visit, and there was even a chance that Janie could come back home and visit them. According to that episode of Cold Case Files, her sister Joyce was four at the time Janie went to Fairview. And without her sister and partner in crime, she was devastated. She was too young to fully understand why her sister and best friend had to leave, and Janie's absence was overwhelming. As she grew older, she adjusted to life without Janie physically present. Sure, there were visits, but over time the visits became less and less. Salem, Oregon was roughly a three-hour drive from the family home in Coos Bay, so the trips had to be planned. But when the family would call to arrange a visit, sometimes they weren't able to see Janie. Staff at Fairview would claim she had moved cabins and needed adjustment time. Or it just wasn't a good time. They had any number of excuses. And Janie's stay at the facility just kept getting longer and longer. Assessments of her progress were done by the team at Fairview, and after each assessment, they determined that Janie could benefit from this class or that class or this therapy or that one. This treatment wasn't cheap either. According to reports, the cost of one resident for a single year was around $200,000. The Landers didn't have that kind of money, so eventually Janie Landers became a ward of the state and was remanded to Fairview. This was something that commonly happened to many of the patients. The Landers continued to visit when they could, and Janie would call Joyce, and they wrote letters back and forth. Janie, in particular, loved getting long letters from her sister Joyce. And once again, Joyce just loved her some Janie. As we go through this case, Joyce's devotion to Janie never wavered. And Joyce is the main reason I'm here telling you this story. Despite the distance, the two sisters shared a deep bond. By 1979, Janie was 18 years old. She was petite at only 5 foot 1 and about 90 pounds soaking wet. Beautiful, with light brown shoulder-length hair and striking blue eyes. Due to her disability, her cognitive development was more like that of an 8-year-old. And Janie still had her struggles. That's why when her parents got that first phone call from Fairview stating that Janie had gone missing, they were concerned but not overly panicked. Janie had a history of getting upset and walking away, but she'd always come back pretty quickly. Joyce recalled to Cold Case Files getting the news that her sister was missing. It was March 9, 1979, and it started out like any other day. Joyce went to school but knew something was up when she got home and her parents asked she and her siblings to sit down because they had some news. Her parents told the kids that the school had called and said Janie was missing, but they thought she'd be back in a couple of hours. She had walked away after getting upset, but they were reassured that everything would be okay and Janie was fine. Unfortunately, that was not the case. As Janie's family waited for a phone call from Fairview, back on the campus, Police had been called and had searched the grounds for hours with no sign of Janie. As the police talked to the staff, they learned the details surrounding Janie's disappearance. They learned that Janie had just gotten back to Fairview after she had been temporarily placed in the Oregon State Hospital following an incident with her roommate at the time, Cheryl. 
About three and a half months prior to her disappearance, Janie and Cheryl had gotten into an altercation while a pot of chili warmed on the stove in the girls' room. As they argued, Janie picked up the pot of chili and poured it over Cheryl's head, burning her. Cheryl was treated for burns and Janie was sent away to the state hospital. When she returned to Fairview, her insurance plan had changed. Just before Janie vanished, she was in a classroom when her counselor, who she was very close with, Bill Graff, came to tell her that due to the change in insurance, therapy sessions with him would no longer be covered, and he would not be seeing her again. A short time after the conversation with Graff, Janie stormed out of the classroom. It was just before 2 p.m. The teacher watched as Janie walked out of the class and towards Kozer Cottage, which was her housing unit. But Janie never arrived back to her room, and after some time passed, she was listed as AWOL. Staff did a quick check of the grounds, but when they couldn't find her, that call to police was made. Police also learned that another employee had seen Janie shortly after two near the main driveway leading up to the school. This employee was headed in for her 3 to 11 shift at Fairview. As she turned the corner close to the driveway, she witnessed a girl she recognized as a resident, although at the time she didn't know her name, standing near the road. But she wasn't alone. There was a car parked on the shoulder, and as she approached, a man walked in front of her car and towards the girl. She recalled to cold case files that she thought it looked fishy, and she didn't know who the man was, but wondered to herself why he was even getting close to the girl. She wanted to stop and pick the young girl up, but there were strict rules against Fairview employees giving rides to residents. So she decided against it and quickly made her way to the cottages and called security. Security responded, but by the time they arrived, there was no sign of the man, the car, or the girl. That girl would later be identified as Janie Landers, and this employee was one of the last people to see her alive. This former employee and three other witnesses would eventually come forward and give a description of the man and car they saw with Janie, and it was all the same. The man was described as having shaggy hair and a pot belly. The car was a gold or yellow four-door older model domestic sedan. Two of the witnesses actually worked at Fairview's snack bar, which fed employees and anyone visiting the center. They recalled that this man had ordered food from them, but other than a brief description, they weren't able to provide authorities with a name. The Statesman Journal provided a sketch artist and worked with the witnesses to develop a sketch of the mystery man, which ran in the paper. The sketch looked familiar to someone investigators had already spoken to, and that was Janie's counselor, Bill Graff. Naturally, as one of the last people to have any interaction with Janie and looking similar to the sketch of who police believed to be the perpetrator, Graff quickly rose to the number one spot as a person of interest. But he agreed to a polygraph, passed with flying colors, and was fully cooperative with police. It didn't seem like Graff was the guy. Four days passed since Janie stormed out of the classroom and vanished. With Graff passing his poly and no other suspects in mind, investigators decided to cast a wide net. Background checks were ran on multiple employees. But this was 1979. The sex offender registry didn't exist yet. 
so officers had to check each and every record, looking for violent and sexual offenses. You'd think that would be an automatic disqualification for employment working with the vulnerable and children. But apparently it wasn't, because several employees were actually sex offenders. But none of them caught the eye of investigators at the time. They either didn't match the description, didn't have access to Janie, and their names were crossed off the list. It's unclear if Fairview took any action once they realized they had sex offenders working with children, but judging from their record, I seriously doubt it. Meanwhile, Janie's family waited for any kind of update, and they'd soon get one. However, it wasn't the update anyone wanted. On March 14, 1979, roughly 20 miles away from Fairview Training Center near Silver Falls Park, a landowner was checking the perimeter of his property when just to the right of the highway, he discovered the body of a young female. He notified authorities, and they knew pretty quickly that they had found Janie Landers. She was the only missing person in Salem, and she had been found in the outfit she was last seen wearing, lying face down in some bushes. There were multiple stab wounds to both the front and back of her neck, and her arms were covered in defensive wounds. The field Janie had been found in had thick, soft dirt, so investigators were able to get impressions of the tire marks leading from the road into the field. But that was about it. There wasn't much evidence left behind, and there was no sign of a struggle. It was clear from the defensive wounds that despite her petite size, Janie Landers had put up one hell of a fight. But this wasn't where that fight had taken place. Janie had been attacked and stabbed at a different location, her body dumped quickly after the assault. Investigators canvassed the area and talked to homeowners nearby, but nobody had seen anything. That wasn't exactly surprising since the area surrounding Silver Lake is pretty rural. It would be very easy for someone to slip in and out without being spotted. Investigators made a difficult call back to Janie's parents in Coos Bay and informed them that not only had their daughter been found murdered, but she was last seen with a mystery man just outside the institution, something they were completely unaware of up until this point. Their world was shattered. Janie was supposed to be safe at a treatment facility. How could this have happened? The following day, on March 15, 1979, an autopsy was performed. The medical examiner confirmed what police on scene already suspected. The attack on Janie Landers was brutal, but she hadn't died due to the multiple stab wounds on her neck. Janie had died due to blunt force trauma to the head. She had been stabbed and beaten, but there was no evidence of a sexual assault. The M.E. was able to recover some evidence from Janie's body. There were four hairs found clutched in her fist. DNA wasn't a thing in 79, but the hairs were collected. Officials were also able to determine that this attack had happened soon after she had been abducted. Janie went to lunch at 12 and was last seen just after 2. Her stomach contents were consistent with what was served for lunch that day at Fairview. Investigators wanted more than ever to find the shaggy-haired man in the gold sedan. On March 22, 1979, that sketch was printed in the local paper in hopes that someone could identify who this man was. 
but no one did. Investigators went back to the drawing board. Who would have wanted to hurt Janie? It didn't appear that she had any enemies, except maybe one or two. Her old roommate Cheryl was still pretty pissed after the altercation with the hot chili. And she wasn't the only one. Cheryl's boyfriend Ray was also angry at Janie for what happened between the two girls. As time passed after Janie had been found, rumors flew around Fairview that Ray wanted to kill Janie. And he did have shaggy hair and a criminal record. So detectives interviewed him, but Ray denied any involvement. Investigators had little to tie him to the crime, but they also couldn't clear him. With no clue who the mystery man was, Janie's counselor being cleared, and no evidence linking Ray to the crime, they were all out of leads. Janie's case went ice cold. Ten years passed without any movement. But in 1989, a tip came in. It was about Cheryl and Ray. By that time, Cheryl had been released from Fairview and was living with her longtime boyfriend, Ray. According to their neighbor, the pair had shown her a news article about Janie's death 10 years prior. The neighbor thought it was odd. It had been 10 years. Why had they hung on to an article? Police thought it was odd, too, so they tracked down Cheryl and re-interviewed her about Janie's murder. And their timing was perfect. It just so happened that the couple were on the outs with each other. Cheryl told investigators that she had seen Ray driving in his truck by Fairview the day Janie disappeared. And further, she had seen one of Janie's earrings in Ray's truck. This was huge, because when Janie's body was recovered, she was only wearing one earring. The other one was missing and had never been found. They tracked down Ray, but again he denied involvement, and the truck Cheryl was talking about had been destroyed. With nothing to go on but the words of an angry ex-girlfriend, Janie's case stalled again. Controversy continued to surround Fairview, and reports began to surface detailing how horrific the abuse was at the training center. Residents were subjected to harsh restraints, tranquilized with drugs, scalded with hot water as punishment, beaten and placed in warm therapy baths that lasted over 20 hours. There were multiple fires on the campus, unsanitary conditions that caused outbreaks, and several bedridden female patients were raped. There were lawsuits and government investigations. The Department of Justice found abusive and unsafe conditions existed. It's no surprise that the state and federal funding began to be pulled, and conditions on campus deteriorated even further. The state created a plan to close Fairview once and for all, and place residents elsewhere, mostly in community care centers or group homes. This plan took 10 years, but in February of 2000, Fairview Training Center finally shut its doors for good. Meanwhile, Joyce never gave up on getting justice for Janie. Over the years, she continued to call the Oregon State Police to keep her sister's case on their minds as it was on hers. In 2001, Janie's case was reopened again at Joyce's suggestion. DNA had come a long way since 1979, and four hairs believed to be the perpetrators had been recovered clenched in Janie's fist. Solving Janie's case could be as simple as running those hairs for DNA. 
Detectives with the Oregon State Police went looking for the hairs. They searched every evidence room, every file in Janie's case. They tried to track down the chain of custody, but records weren't kept back then the way they are now. To this day, those four hairs have never been located. But Joyce didn't give up, and her tenacity was about to pay off. Another five years passed. In 2015, Joyce called again like she had dozens of times before. At her urging, once again, Janie's case was taken off the shelf and placed on the desk of OSP detective Steve Hinkle. According to the Oregon State Police, at the time, Hinkle was a 17-year veteran of the force, with seven years under his belt as a detective, but this was his first cold case. Hinkle wasted no time and got right down to business, first bringing Janie's old case file up to date, converting old pictures into up-to-date digital ones, taking old interviews off cassette tapes, and just bringing the whole case into the 21st century. He poured over every detail, starting in the same place investigators had way back when with Bill Graff, Janie's counselor. He too cleared Graff pretty quickly and moved on to Cheryl's boyfriend, Ray. He learned that Ray had passed away in 1998, and there really wasn't anything besides Cheryl's statement that pointed towards Ray. So he moved on and began to study the crime scene and autopsy photos. It was obvious that Janie fought with everything she had. There were multiple stab wounds around both sides of her neck and on her arms. It was while Hinkle was looking at photos of those wounds that he noticed something or the lack of something. The stab wounds were deep. However, there was no hilt abrasions. What is a hilt abrasion? I had the same question. According to Live Science, the hilt of a knife is just a fancy way of saying handle. And a knife handle or hilt is made up of three parts, the butt or end of the knife, the grip, and the guard, which is the part located where the blade meets the grip. Its purpose is to guard your hand from slipping down onto the blade. According to Florida Forensic Science, if the force of the penetration is strong enough, an abrasion-type wound is often left behind on the skin surrounding the stab wound as the hilt of the knife hits the skin. In Janie's case, it was clear from the depth and number of wounds that one would expect to see hilt abrasions, but there were none. Why was this so important? Detective Hinkle theorized that it was likely the perpetrator had been cut during the struggle. There were multiple bloodstains on Janie's clothing, which Detective Hinkle had located. He met with trace evidence scientist Jennifer Rydell, and the two came up with a game plan. Rydell selected several bloodstains on Janie's shirt that appeared to be transfer-type bloodstains that they thought might belong to the perpetrator. The stains were swabbed and submitted for DNA on July 6, 2015. Nine long months passed and everyone held their breath. It was worth the wait, though, because in April of 2016, there was a hit. Unknown male DNA was present on Janie's shirt. Detectives couldn't wait any longer, and the day after they received that hit, they ran the DNA through CODIS. And they had a match. Gerald Kenneth Dunlap, a man who had never been a blip on the radar in relation to Janie's murder. But perhaps he should have. What Detective Hinkle soon uncovered about Dunlap was infuriating and disturbing. 
At the time of Janie's murder, Dunlap had already been convicted of a violent attack on a woman in 1961, back in Knoxville, Tennessee. Dunlap had robbed a laundromat and raped the clerk at gunpoint behind the counter before fleeing. He was caught, convicted, and faced the death penalty. Instead of getting the needle, Dunlap was sentenced to life in prison, but for reasons unknown to Jesus and his legions of angels, was paroled in 1973. This joker served 12 years of a life sentence and was paroled. If you're trying to figure out the mathematical equation that made that possible, welcome to the club. We're all friends here. After his parole, he spent some time in California before moving to Oregon. Two years after he relocated to Oregon in 1976, he got a job at Fairview Training Center as a laundry worker. This cutting-edge treatment center hired this freaking guy. Hinkle was able to track down some employment records, which is incredible, since Fairview had been closed 16 years at this point and he verified that Dunlap was employed at the center from 1976 to 1983. And further, after talking to former Fairview laundry supervisors and employees, the detective learned that laundry took a break every day around 2 p.m., the same time Janie had last been seen. Employees revealed that they had witnessed Dunlap at bus stops around the center trying to convince patients to ride with him, instead of waiting for a bus. They also reported that Dunlap was creepy and that he had ultimately been fired from Fairview for inappropriate contact with a female patient who also worked in laundry after he reportedly patted the girl on the butt. Detective Hinkle wasn't done yet. He contacted the Tennessee Department of Corrections and found Dunlap's booking photo from 1973 so he'd have the most accurate depiction of what Dunlap would have looked like back then. That photo was compared to the sketch and presented to two of the four witnesses that were still alive that seen the man talking to Janie in a photo lineup. Both witnesses positively identified Dunlap as the man they had seen that day, and the sketch bore a striking resemblance to Dunlap's photo. Hinkle tracked down Dunlap's former wife and learned that at the time Janie disappeared, Dunlap was driving a gold, late-model domestic sedan. She also told him that Dunlap used to camp at Silver Creek Falls Park and was very familiar with the area, the same area Janie's body had been found. After 38 years, it seemed like justice was finally coming for Janie and her family. But Gerald Kenneth Dunlap would never be held accountable for the murder of Janie Landers, at least not in this life, because he was dead. Janie's family finally had answers, but it was bittersweet, especially after they learned that Dunlap had gone on to offend yet again after Janie's murder. In 1996, almost 20 years after Dunlap murdered Janie, he had been convicted of first-degree sexual abuse. The victim was his own step-granddaughter. The justice system had failed her and Janie. OSP Criminal Investigations Captain John Harrington spoke to the Statesman Journal in 2017 and said for cases like Janie's to be solved, a couple critical things are needed. The first is a vocal, persistent family advocate. 
For Janie, her sister Joyce was that person. She repeatedly urged OSP to reopen her sister's case. In 2015, she contacted them again, hoping to find closure while her father was still alive. The second was a dogged detective, and that was Detective Steve Hinkle. He went on to say, Detective Hinkle is extremely hardworking, extremely intelligent. He put a lot of his own time into this case. He really took it under his wing and brought it to where it was. Detective Hinkle and his team were able to solve Janie's case before her father Richard passed away, something that meant the world to Joyce. Hinkle presented a memorial plaque to Joyce and Richard on behalf of the Oregon State Police. It was a brick from the cottage Janie lived at during her time at Fairview, inscribed with her name and date of birth and death. Joyce spoke to the Statesman Journal and said, I'm really grateful and relieved that it's done. She can be totally at peace now because her case is solved. Fairview Training Center was abandoned after its closure in 2000. The buildings remained unoccupied for years and became a hotspot for wannabe graffiti artists and ghost hunters. The buildings have all since been demolished, and apartments and new construction replaced the old cottages and medical buildings. Some claim it's still one of the most haunted places in Oregon, but the real-life abuse and trauma suffered by Janie Landers and the thousands treated at Fairview is far more terrifying than any ghost story. As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram, at least underscore of these, or my Facebook, at least of these podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button because I'll be bringing you an all new case next week. You can finally get all your episodes ad free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. I'll also post a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.